Hey, what's up, guys? It's Rico here, CEO of Source Financia, Coast Main Channel Podcast, and the host of the Source Financia YouTube channel, of course, back with another one. I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. What is the difference between doing media in China versus in France, for example, or Europe, Western media? To clarify, do you mean like media in terms of news, like CNN, CCTV, or more? You can, maybe you can give a generalization or whatever you think is more important to to point out. We're not talking about entertainment because okay, so here is the thing: like a lot of people, we have basically. So in the world of documentary, documentary is always you're telling a story. And you know, even being a YouTuber and uh, so for example, oh, I forgot, but one of my gig is that I'm helping uh, this uh, one guy from Sweden, uh, Eric, he's uh, like a YouTuber and he does those kind of survival video and I put his video on Bilibili. And uh, people in China really appreciate it because that's some kind of content you cannot do in China. Like you cannot just, you know, start cutting trees and building a house in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> like that would be completely forbidden. So people really appreciate that. Uh, so yeah, you know, like documentary could be many, many forms uh, and it's kind of a yeah, mashup of different kind of content. So you would have the world of documentary, but this is more like entertainment. Like the idea is like, to, you know, like just teach you something or show you a world that you have no idea about or, you know, see someone's dad struggle, like I think, so that maybe can resonate with you. Uh, so that's the first world. But then the world of news is just like, you know, the latest Ukraine offensive military um, to take back their territory or the, the, or the Elizabeth uh, II death, you know, things like that, like the, the latest thing. So which one would you prefer want me to talk about? I can talk about both, but is there a preference first? I guess uh, most of the people ask me about like the restrictions around news, I guess. I have a question about the documentary thing as well, in, in the sense that uh, do you think a, a movie like Last Train Home could be done today? Would, would they get the same level of access and you know these, these kind of things? So, okay. Yeah. So quickly about news, because I've, I've been working at CGTN Francais. So for those who don't know, CGTN is uh, the, it's like CCTV uh, and it's like the international media outlet of CCTV. And you have a lot of those, you have like Sierra, you have China Daily and uh, People's Daily. They all have like their English or French or Spanish or whatever version, like CRI, China Radio International. I think they have like over 50 language. They even have like Esperanto. So, you know, like if you speak Esperanto and you want to work in Beijing, you have a shot. Um, <laughs> but, but joke aside, like the, the main difference, and because I'm also part of the FCCC, which is like a, a forest a correspondent club of foreign journalists living who are working in China. Okay. Uh, the difference is that mainly if you work in a state media, orders come from above and uh, you can pitch stories, but um, most of the time, like you would have, I've, I've, I've worked a little bit at AFP, uh, which is like one of the top three main news agency, but that was like years, years ago. So you have AFP, Reuters. Associated Foreign Press, right? Uh, Agence France Press, which is like a agency, French press agency. Oh. Um, so, but from what I see, 
what's interesting in the media world is that basically you have, from what I see, and I think that goes both way in every, whether it's Western countries or in China, like everyone kind of copy each other. Like there is a main news and then basically everyone is rushing after this. Like if Ukraine starts a military offensive, basically everyone's going to talk about it. And the question is, who's going to break the story? If you break the story, then everyone's going to follow up. Uh, but I think like in China, people just and especially at CGTN, like we would be more following what CCTV has pushed as a CCTV or Xinhua. And then we would, you know, like basically report the same news. But I've, I have a friend like who works at AFP and he told me that the same. Also, sometimes they go and check like what CGTN has published and they also use those kind of content and news so that they can put it for their own readers. So. Um, maybe it's a little bit messy but the idea is that I think generally for basic news everyone kind of is working the same but mm. in terms of like breaking news story than Western media so far because they have more money and they are more incentive because you know with most of Western media more money uh, well okay the, okay here well maybe they don't have more money but then they have more incentive because when you're the New York Times or Le Monde uh, like French biggest newspaper one of the biggest one or El Pais or uh, Toronto Star, I guess. I think that's the name. Yeah, um, Star, yeah. Basically, the idea is that the only way for you to survive is that you have to have readers and you have people to pay membership. But when you're in a state media uh, like CGTN, your all your budget is coming from the state. All your budget is coming from um, I don't know exactly which places, but you don't have the same incentive. Because like uh, CGTN would be more a work of representation. Like we want to show the world what's the point of view of China, but they don't care as much about how much reader they have. So I think that's one of the main difference is that when you are a private media and yes, you can do get subsidies or yes, you can be the BBC and you get basically subsidies with everyone paying up, you know, their yearly money to the state so that the BBC can stay independent and relevant. But at the end of the day, like they, those media abroad abroad because i'm in china like they rely on their readers to buy membership most of the time uh, whereas in china i think the main difference is that you just have like someone footing you the bill and then you have a mandate you have to report about those kind of topic so therefore you know it's not the same thing uh, like I've, when i was at cgtn sometime we would put news about we would put tweets about a news that was like two days old and you kind of think this is not relevant anymore. We should have posted that two days ago, but because it goes through a longer process, process. of news and, and translating and stuff like that, then the problem is that then we're not relevant. But, you know, that's the mandate. We have to talk about this, but it doesn't matter if it's two days old, which I think do is you, a bit sad. Do you, do you feel sometimes like, a, I guess, a little bit restricted or like, you know, in terms of the creativity and ideas and things like that well i mean uh, obviously, as much as you can as much as you can say without but, uh, uh, <laughs> obviously there are regulation in china uh yeah. i mean uh, one everyone knows this but i think like there is also just even before this like there was i remember so to give you an example like when i was at cgtn like i pitched a couple of stories uh, so we had like this program which is like really easy uh, which is like I start up my dream. So the idea is that you would go interview francophone uh, people in China who are like making a business, and that's really kind of a Zhang Nang as they call it, like positive stories, and you know just show like people doing a lot of business. 
and I was pitching, I was uh, going on various WeChat group, I was interviewing people and stuff like that. And then I came and we, uh, this is when I realized, I didn't know it back then, but this is when I realized that there are a lot of African people who are in China doing a lot of uh, big business with factories and, mm-hmm. and import export stuff like that. So I pitched it to my boss, to my manager, and she's like, ah, yeah, okay, but you know, like we prefer to put forward like China technology and uh, and you know we don't want to showcase so much that uh, you know we have factories in China and I'm, I was kind of a bit baffled because I thought yeah sure maybe you have some and then you realize that the people working in tech are all like um, white middle-aged men there, there's not a lot of women and there is not a lot of people of colors and you're kind of thinking because i've met some of those people and sometimes you think but i think the people doing import export they move much more money than the people working in tech or trying to you know product and uh and also maybe the people doing import export maybe they have just a better impact on many people's life i don't see why this is not a topic but she was like no no we prefer to focus on the tech like okay so then i tried to find people working in tech and then i found this one guy from switzerland uh, works in hongzhou and I pitched her again and she's like, oh no, but this guy, the problem is that we interviewed him three years ago. And you're like, but three years have passed, <laughs> considering China's speed, maybe he has like new story to tell. And it's not yeah. like you have thousands of francophone people working in tech in China. You know, at some point, like you just have a certain amount of people like this. So yes, we have regulation, but then there is kind of this whole culture of, we just have a mandate to, f- to fulfill and we don't have to take risk and we don't have to, you know, kind of uh, overwork actually. So I think that's like another thing that no one knows really much about, but this is also why you don't see a lot of interesting, you know, news segment or documentary coming out from CCTV and so on, because it's just the way that people don't have to, have, they, they have KPI, but those KPI are just how many people can retweet your tweet and that's it. It's not like how many people are actually watching your stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. Like the first story that you mentioned in terms of like uh, the restriction of like, oh, we want to show this image. You know what I mean? We we don't mm. want to put this other image out there into the into the world. And I think that um, you know China is pretty good at that. Uh, they've been doing that, but I think maybe in the last two years with COVID and everything like that, that's been a little bit more difficult to to manage. Um, and the trade wars and everything but yeah the, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me because I, I also felt it when I was still there living there is that there was definitely a focus of shifting the narrative of where the manufacturing cap- capital of the world to where where a tech capital as well you know um, I'm, I'm not sure in terms of the numbers I, I'm, I'm not Hundred percent sure, but I know that manufacturing is still the number one industry. You know, uh, maybe, yeah, number one industry next to like tech and then uh, real estate. But even real estate is not in a good place right now. So, but yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so yeah, so then the second question I had was about uh, what was it? I lost my place there. Uh, but then I think you can re-see the same thing regarding documentary. So it's basically the same issue, which is like if you are in a private company, um, sorry, coming again, regarding documentary. So you could see the same thing, like if you are a CCTV, 
basically you have a mandate to put that much amount of content regarding history, nature, travel, stuff like that. So then you contact people, producer in China, and you're like, I want to have my five part series about traveling in wherever. Um, but then the quality of the work won't be that important because I mean, it, it, it's a bit important because if your numbers are way too low, then your program will get cut off. Like a, a friend of mine, this is what happened to her. She was running, a, she was working in a small show on CCTV seven. And at some point the numbers were so low that they decided to just cut it off. But I mean, at the end of the day, they don't have to care that much. But if you're a private company, like if you're Yoku, Bilibili, uh, then this is more important because you're an online platform and you rely on people's buying membership. And for that, this is where all the best TV shows now are all coming from the online platform uh, or like this documentary, because this is the, then you have like proper producer and proper creators who are thinking, okay, how do I get as much ice ball as possible so that we get enough people to watch the ads <laughs> or to make the sponsor happy so that we can move on to, cr to create a new season or create a new product. So I think like this is kind of where, uh, let's say, Western creativity in terms of production and China comes and meet again. It's when you have like the private company who want to make their own project and uh, because this is important for them, like they need to have as much people as possible watching what they produced. But people at CCTV, they don't care as much. Mm -hmm. Hope that answer. Oh yeah, so the yeah that was good. But um, so I guess the other question that I had was, do you think last train can we home? Make, can we make last train home again? Uh, yeah. Well, fun facts. Uh, we just I didn't work on that project, but last train home as a follow up. Uh, it's not Lee Sin who directed it, but they have a five part series now. This being broadcasted on IT. Uh, mm -hmm. But I th first of all. Okay, I think first of all, like China, because that film was shot in between 2006 and 2008, if I recall, you know, like China back then and China today is just completely different. I mean, yeah. come on, it's just the way things have completely changed. So yeah, for sure. I, I, in the sense of, yeah, you can't shut that store anymore. After, yes, it is harder now for, uh, for creators, like, you know, to, to just like, Okay, let me let me retract. Now also the rules have slightly changed. So back then, uh, when you were like Zhang Yimou, uh, famous uh, Chinese director, and you were in the 80s and France, actually, like the French Minister of Foreign Affairs was basically helping him shooting some of his movie. So back then, like he could go all around the film festival in the world and China, let's say, didn't have enough like clout to say, you know what, Zhang Yimou, Mr. Zhang Yimou, you can't go out, uh, you know, showing your movies about like cultural revolution. That's not really cool mm. for us. So not possible. They could not do that. Basically, they didn't have the clout. But today, uh, China is like such a powerhouse that, yes, now in order to show your movie abroad, you need to have like a, what we call a dragon stamp. And the rules, and it's all official, uh, is that if you want your movie to be shown in foreign festival, you need to have that dragon stamp. So you need to follow the local regulation of creativity. Uh, that doesn't mean, I mean, um, you still have good movies. Uh, like there is one, if I recall the name, is When the Dust Settle. And it's like a, a, a movie, indie movie, which is about this man uh, who gets who gets to get married. And 
if you read between the lines, uh, you understand what's going to happen at the end of the story. And then you went to the Berlin Film Festival. So you still have people like, I think if you're like crafty enough and artisty enough, and if you fight enough, like you can still make good stories in China. Uh, but yes, for sure things like you could not maybe do Last Train Home because first uh, China's change, but also there is another part to it. Like I think people in China now are a little bit more proud of, you know, the achievement of the country. And I can understand that you would kind of be tired of always having those uh, movies portraying China as like a poor and backward place. And I think they would kind of be uh, not ashamed, but kind of uh, uh, another another movie another that a country yeah. in such a way. I mean, I'm sure like if you're from Africa and you show uh, again like Savannah and Lions and, uh, you know, but maybe now they are like, uh, you know, other stuff happening or when people come to Paris and they shoot the town in such a touristy way, at some point you're like, okay, but Paris is not also that just that yeah, more, more to it. And also well, I think social media played a role is that now you have any clip of anyone just like a couple of days ago, Angela baby, like one of famous Chinese star, like she was caught up yeah, smoking in a private party. And, you know, like suddenly it's, it becomes like a national debate about if she can smoke. And I mean, I, th <laughs> I, 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 mean, I personally think like sometimes social media really push out their debate that maybe should not be there. But, you know, that's the way we live in now. I was just thinking that like with the last train home debate situation, it would be uh, more about creating a documentary where you have access to things that might not show china in the best light you know what i mean i'm curious about this dragon stamp situation so how does that work so for every piece of content you want to put in the cinema so you will just go to your local regulators and you will show them the script when it's fiction film when it's documentary i'm not sure but at the end of the day you will show them like the final product and then they will tell you if anything can be put up there so for those who will cry to censorship, because there is also something else different in China. And I don't know how many countries are like this in the world, but in China, every movie is supposedly be able to be watched by every single people. So that means that every even a three-year-old kid should be able to watch your movie. There is no rating system between, you know, like uh, all public, PG-13, PG-16, or only adults. Well, pornography is fully forbidden in China, like in Korea and Japan, for a reminder. Um, but that means that if every movie has to be seen by every single people in in the population, then obviously you're going to have to tone down every single thing because you can't have like a, a rating. But what's funny enough is that if you look at application of movie ticket, you can still see there are like a lot of really bad horror movies in China, but they're all being showed at 11 p.m. So they are like people who try to find a way sketchy to, you know, try to grab a bug the, the way they can. Um, yeah. So yeah, so the dragon stamp would mean that you you just need to be like for every single audience about the movies how much insight do you have into foreign movies in in china because like i was gonna say um i was gonna ask about like i know there's a quote there's a quota in terms of the amount of foreign films that can be shown versus uh local films um and then there's different versions of movies for a lot of these big budget movies also, I noticed when I was still there and I was watching movies in cinema, sometimes I would, I would watch a movie and I'm like, 
I feel like they added this section where the character goes to China and all these things just to allow themselves to be able to sell the film in China. You know what I mean? So do you have any insight or, or any thoughts about that? Sure. First of all, now movie situation is really bad in China uh, because you have like all those local lockdown happening from there and there. So uh -huh. it's becoming incredibly more difficult for China to, you know, for the people running uh, film theater. Another part is that I, I forgot if it's still the same, but at some point, like thanks to COVID, but China was like the biggest film market in the world. That was uh, at least in early 2021, if I recall correctly. But now because of the of the whole pandemic situation, you know, like when you have the whole Shanghai people population cannot go to movies for two months and maybe they can't still even go to movies because it's closed space. So, of course, that basically kills the market. Uh, but yes, so in China, officially only 34 movies can be imported. That's part of the quota system, as we call it. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a way around it. Uh, the last movie I remember, for example, is The Green Book. Uh, that's a co-production between the American company and Tencent. So that's how this movie is not counted as a quota. So that means that many movies were trying to find like Chinese money so that it would become like a Chinese-American co-production so that it could enter China. Since the trade war, this is not the case anymore. Like no one in their right mind would want to do a co-production with the US when the country is, you know, still running the trade war that is not in the in the time. I mean, this is not the way things happen. Uh, yes, sometimes you do have, you know, small added scene or specific scene that basically cater to the Chinese audience. Like I remember uh, the Martian with Matt Damon, like when they try to save him from Mars <laughs> and basically they're like, oh, they're Chinese scientists. Uh, uh, but, yeah, you know, yeah. I think it kind of backfire in a way because then people in the audience, or oh, then there was the other one. Um, uh, uh, no, 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 no. There was another one regarding like a giant shark eating people. Oh, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, is that the, the one with the dude from Fast Five series and stuff like that? Yeah. yeah. And But basically, like what the was Meg. funny. The Meg. Yeah, the Meg. So when the Meg goes to Hainan Highland and tries to, you know, terrorize people, but he doesn't eat anyone. And so people in the audience on Weibo were kind of laughing at it, saying like it's a shark movie, but they are not eating anyone in China, but they are eating people in the US because I think the, I didn't see the movie, but they were making fun of it. And so I think like at some point people are not stupid. They're like, okay, we see it. You're not just pampering us so that, you know, you would uh, was want go to see movies but uh, there yeah. was another movie uh, uh, King Kong Skull Island and uh, there was a Chinese famous Chinese actress in that movie and she basically didn't speak for most of the movie she was around uh, but it's clear like sh she can't speak English so uh, it, it, there was just one scene at the end of the movie where there's a romantic scene with her and one of the main characters and it's it just didn't make sense. <laughs> like, it didn't make sense at all. It was just a moment for her to, you know, be on screen and have a little romance and speak English. And, you know, and it just, that was one of those situations that kind of took me out of the movie as well, where, you know, I know what's going on here, you know, so. I would think that really the audiences are getting you know like so because on the side like one of my side gig is i'm doing a podcast about china cultural industry and recently i've put up a, a topic about like 
TV series. And back then, TV series in China would be, and once again, we're coming back to the private versus public sector in creation in China. A few years ago, like if you watch any Chinese TV series, there would be like 50 episodes of each 50 minutes. I mean, this is like way, way too long. And um, <laughs> I mean, I remember watching the series like Do Qinghao, uh, which is a, that kind of struck a chord with a lot of uh, young women in China. And within 15 episodes, you would basically sense, okay, the story has come to an end or the first season has come to an end, but then they would slap up more season more episode after this so that was kind of weird but i was talking to this producer and this writer and they were basically saying now because the market is getting uh you know people are still watching movies from abroad like if you go on doban uh, which is like the chinese imdb if you go on doban like the latest coolest movie from abroad people know it instantly which one they're supposed to download because they are going to download it because those are pg 13 16 but so the the audience at least the young urbanites uh, in shanghai beijing you know the tier one cities i think they know what's good content and so therefore then when they are and so therefore the private sector in china now when they make series they tend to have more like a european or american format they're reducing the number of episodes from 50 to 20 or even 15. So that means that I think the audience, they are just learning. I wouldn't call it a silent revolution, but people know what is good content and they're watching it no matter what. And, you know, the word is spreading out. I mean, some, sometimes I travel and I always try to get people's WeChat that are never in my world, like, you know, the taxi driver or the one guy selling stuff on one of the tower in the, in, of the Great Wall. <laughs> you know some tower in the great world they have like small shops and you know you have like local peasants so i always try to get people wechat and i realized i don't know i remember meeting this girl from jinan and she was just like a clerk in a company and i added her wechat and we talked but she's like a, a huge fan of billy eilish uh, you know like the oh, billy eilish like, yeah billy eilish sorry for mispronouncing her name but you know like she's like 20 plus something she's never left her town but she still managed to love this artist so i think like there is really it's not so much on the radar of uh you know international media because that's not a super sexy topic but i that's my gut feeling that people here they watch cool stuff and and the word is spreading maybe it's not super important but you know it's not like people are watching everyone is making fun of all the patriotic movie like uh, that they <laughs> forcibly put up in cinema that's really interesting actually the generation is kind of changing and, and consuming more and more foreign content and then sort of trying to replicate that in China as well, right? I mean, I don't have metrics to prove it. It's only my gut feeling as, you know, the overconfident uh, white dude here in Beijing. But yeah, I do <laughs> sense that no, if you want to watch the metrics, you just go to IMD, uh, you just go to Doban, you check what are the latest movie that got the best ratings. And then you will see that there is a few foreign movie that, you know, got got good ones. So then you can have a sense of what people are are doing, are watching. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I could see that happening because like, uh, like on our side of things with my business and everything, I noticed that there's been some generational shifts with my hires right so like for example like i said I, I turned 30 this year my oldest employee currently uh chinese employee is about 26 she complains about the 22 year olds and 21 year olds 23 year olds that we've hired to 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 work for us she's like well, they, 
they don't listen they need they need me to explain they ask too many questions you know like so her generation is more close to even though she's still a millennial her generation is more close to like the traditional chinese where it's like okay your boss told you to do something you do it you know what i mean and then with her with the people that she's managing she's having to explain and convince them to do something rather than just telling them to do it and what i explained to her I was like yeah it's a generational shift there's nothing wrong with that you have to just you have to explain you have to explain to them why they ha- why they have to do this particular thing that might be annoying to do or might, might be tedious so you know there's i don't I, i also don't have any metrics around this but like i'm just seeing it within my own business as well so where do you see the industry going in general uh, just as an overall topic uh yeah that's the one million dollar question i keep asking it to you know the people around me uh so i run this podcast called middle earth uh, which is focused on china cultural industry uh, i didn't talk about this but in your question regarding how did i overcome uh, my issues you know to find gigs and meet people and be more out there one of my trick is that i started this podcast about china cultural industry and i went out just you know asking people inter- asking people question and bringing them on to talk about their project like i was interviewing producer uh, people running galleries or you know youtuber or things like that all focused on the chinese market and that's always my ending question like you like to to the guests when we talk about like the tv series or recently i've talked to people um, doing contemporary art or uh, even like people doing motorcycle uh, because i was interested to know more about the biker culture and wherever i go i mean the down point is that more regulation are still there and you know like i think uh, this is not going to be e- easier to make content in china like uh, you have like to follow certain type of stories people will still find a way to, you know to entertain themselves in a different way if they want but at the same time I think the market in China just keeps growing. Yesterday I was talking to this um woman. She works in a company and that company is selling contemporary art through a WeChat application. And then when I was asking her like how do you see the future? She was like it's going to be okay. Like yes, uh, you can't do a piece of art that is like way too that has too much political or sexual connota- connotation, but you know people here they they want to buy art they want to you know enjoy life so she was thinking the market is just going to keep growing for our company like we're we're going to sell more and more art on wechat so yeah it, it's kind of an interesting paradigm like because on one hand i think like yeah uh, we we can see like the way china acts in in terms of you know politically being stronger on the international scene day by day but then at the same time the local population they you know they just want to have a good time and now they know more and more and i think it goes all across product like i remember talking to this guy who was selling craft beer you know like really basic stuff but for me it's like people here they know what's good quality before 10 years ago we thought no one would drink coffee but now everyone is drinking coffee uh, because people like the quality of things and i think it goes all across borders and nationality and they, they, they get educated educated over time right yeah i mean i don't know but to be honest with you also at the same time i think that's kind of uh, the one thing i'm we try uh, with listen for example to tell stories about china that can go abroad uh, but the problem is that it's really hard i think because you have like so many canon to follow here in terms of uh, 
cultural product that if you want to show it abroad, then it becomes like kind of too patriotic or just too old style the way mm. the way people make decisions. Because the people, most of the people, like in any country, I mean, France has like a strong help subsidies system. But who are the people deciding who gets the subsidies to make your movie? It's either the professional of the TV channel or those are special commission that are run by your peer and industry professional. But in China, you still have like a strong government. So the people of the culture bureau are, you know, Lingdao in their 50s. And those people are not artists. They are, you know, administration people. So yeah. that's why so that's why the people who make decisions sometimes for a project to it's not even about censorship now it's just about like personal taste so of course like a 50 year old man who loves traditional culture will think that a certain type of movie or documentary to represent china is maybe not the same way as the young people of china would would think it should be that makes a lot of sense yeah i mean i feel like that's across the board in a lot of different industries like you said where it's like it's older people making decisions for younger people like this is what we think is better for you whereas like uh you know the younger people want to consume a different form of media so just moving into the closing questions i could probably talk to you for two hours to be honest but like um i was gonna ask like uh what have you found to be the most beneficial skills for you in your industry I think I kind of already answered that, but just to repeat quickly, really like yeah. to talk to people. Uh, I think that's the the key things. Like, like 80, uh, 20 principles, same thing, like 20% that break, brings you the, I asked yeah. earlier as well, yep. Uh, I realize now if I retrace back all the time I got a job, it's because I met someone at a party and then they told me, I mean, the way I met Lee Sin, you know, I, I met Lee Sin because I met his producer in a party and one day that producer Yuan she calls me up and she's like oh Aladdin do you know anyone who can write write proposal in English and I'm like well me you could you could uh, you could hire me and this is what happened so if I did not met her in the party they would have never know who I am they would have never called me up and they might have found someone else so I think yeah it's all about you, you still have to deliver you still have to make a good job at what you do but if you are out there and I realized because years ago when I was struggling to find side gig, it's because when you have nothing to start with, it's really, really hard. But as soon I kind of realized, I'm not a billionaire by, by any point, but I really see that now projects are slowly coming more out to me and more than me chasing them. So I think that's thanks to, you know, going out there, meeting people. Um, maybe I, I don't do this enough, but maybe post more stuff on LinkedIn and uh, WeChat a moment. Sometimes I feel I have nothing to share, so I don't want to do it. But uh, <laughs> I uh, one important skill, maybe that's something I should learn. Well, I mean, you, I'm sure you have multiple clips from different projects that you you could post. Uh, okay, what's one thing that you believe when you tell other people they think it's crazy? So back a few years ago, when I was kind of struggling, you know, to find gigs or you know do small, you know, do stuff on my own. Basically, I started writing potential uh, topic and uh, I pitched it to my manager, uh, Steven Seiden Steve Seidenberg, who is uh, in the industry for all, over 40 years. And I pitched him several topic and he, he picked up the, the, the one thing that I keep doing now, the podcast, the Middle Earth podcast, where I interview all those 
decision maker in the cultural industry in China. And I started doing this. And I think a lot of people at the beginning, um, funny, like cultural differences, like Westerners were more like, oh, that's cool. You do a podcast. And for years, I did it for free. Like that was my passion project. But a lot of people in China were like, why are you doing something for free? Because, you know, you interview people, you do the research, you do the editing, then you post it for free. Like you don't make any money out of that. And I could sense that many people thought I was a bit stupid to do this. Like I should just focus on work or I should focus on something that pays or uh, maybe even going to the gym. I don't know. I, I felt like many people were kind of baffled um, about why are you doing this for free? Like you do it for free and you don't get paid for that. Like they didn't say, are you stupid? But I think I could sense it. And um, at the end, now I'm working with the magazine, The World of Chinese. And they contacted me because I had like a whole back catalog. I had like over 45 episodes of every type of topic and they saw a value in it. And then now we're working like we put up two episodes a month. And I have to admit that yet sometimes I thought maybe that's stupid to do something for free out there. But I think if you keep going at it and trust me, I thought maybe I should stop at some point. But I think if you yeah do something that you like and you keep going at it, then at some point it will pay up. Just be patient, but uh, as long as you have maybe one stream of revenue, you know, your your job, then find your passion project and try to, you know, put it up until it becomes your main job. I had to explain a lot to pe people in China, like why we have a podcast or even even the YouTube channel and stuff like that. Really? So it's like, yeah, yeah. I was selling them. It's a marketing tool, but I, I also just enjoy like in interviewing people, making new connections, like I'm learning from people, all this stuff. But yeah, I, I had the same sense of like people just looking at me like uh, what you're doing doesn't make sense. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, I can relate to that feeling. Um, all right. So three books, podcasts or blogs that people could check out if they wanted to understand you better. Um, so I think the first TV series, it's a really old one, but I think if one day I could make a TV series like this, as someone who works in documentary, I would be really proud. Uh, it's called Generation Kill. So it's based on a, one article uh, that was, there was like, you know, at the beginning of the second Iraq, Iraqi war. So you had like all those journalists being embedded into like American units when they were invading Iraq for the weapon of mass destruction that they never found. Right. <laughs> and, um, and so you have this TV series called Generation Kill and it's only one season of 10 episodes, if I recall. And that's really like it's fiction, but it's really based on a true story in the sense that, you know, that's like a, a journalist who wrote the article and then they based the whole TV series about that. And I think it's really a wonderful piece of fiction that, you know, brings you in places that sometimes a documentary cannot do because, uh, um, you know, it's just like the quality of sometimes fiction is maybe a better way to explain things that have happened in the past. Uh, then if I would recall a podcast, I mean, I think like uh, you guys are, you know, all about uh, business and factories and sourcing the, the right people. So I think one podcast I would recommend is uh, Planet Money from NPR. And it's basically like a lot of uh, 20 minutes, 25 maximum about like really basic economical situation. For example, they did something like breaking down the price of gasoline, or then they did a whole interesting story about like about uh, people scanning people on Amazon with like sending free product. Or, or then there was like the story of a guy who created like a, a small, who 
was selling his house and then put like a, a computer doing uh, like a mining blockchain uh, in the basement when he was selling the house. I mean, they, they find like really interesting small stories. And I think for anyone who is into business, that's always kind of a nice breathe, uh, you know, just to hear other stories of how other people are making a business. I think it's very interesting. And the last thing I would recommend is a book called uh, Fan Shen, a documentary of revolution in a Chinese village. So that book actually I, I was sent it to me by a friend. And, uh, you know, everyone in China know Edgar Snow, uh, Edgar Snow being this journalist that interviewed Mao Zedong in the in the early in the late 30s, early 40s. And then he was like a, a good friend of China. Uh, a lot of people are laughing at him because he was uh, they he could have been manipulated, but that's not a topic. The the book uh, Fan Shen basically was written by this guy, William Hinton. So he was like, he went to China uh, when it was still the Republican government, and he was kind of a, uh, an advisor for agricultural question. Uh, he was teaching and he was working there. Then when the communists took over, basically he felt compelled that they were also doing it for the right reason. So he kind of joined them. And then he was teaching in a college, like an agricultural thing to students. And then that's the moment when you have like the whole moment when the, the breakdown of old society, when they're basically like redistributing the earth uh, and the land among like all those villages. And so you have the story of that village, uh, which is like, I, I read it in the French version. I forgot the name of the village in English, but basically it's like you have like a deep explanation of Chinese society and how it's transformed. And when you compare it to today's China is just really amazing. And you realize, because, you know, we always hear about stuff like, oh, China has evolved so much above the less years and so on. But when you see the where they were coming from and the way the society was working, like you had maybe in that village, you had 250 families but five families were really rich and the rest were just working their ass off until they died and they just could not, you know, they just had to pray that they would not feel sick or, you know, that their house would be burned down for some random reason. So I think this book really like shows, gives you the way China was at the end of the 40s after World War II and, and the revolution. So, of course, like things were not easy, but you kind of get a sense of where the country was from coming for thousands of years. And when you compare it to today's China, like you see like the whole differences. I think that's really, I love that book. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? So if you guys are still listening, thank you again. So you can reach out to me to, on LinkedIn, uh, Aladdin Fare. I'm sure we'll have a, a link in the description, or you can reach out to me on Twitter, the same name. Thank you for uh, being on the podcast, Alain. It's been fantastic. Like I said, we could have been talking for hours. I, I have more questions, more things that I want to ask you, but I'll let you go. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Well, we can have another part three, part four, another day. And I will let uh, Lissin know about, uh, you know, the, the Discord. And if one day you show it again, like I will send him the link. Maybe he can join. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, the Discord, uh, people can join for free as well. So it's, it's uh, you just have to go to the website and check our services. And actually, there's a specific Discord link. So we'll link up all of the things that you discussed here and, and your podcast as well. Maybe I can jump on your podcast and discuss Chinese culture a little bit. Thanks. Cheers. Just so I can feel like I'm in a moment with you. And I wake up and do it all again. I 
Friction got us going.